This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, February 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Many people are dismissive, even fearful, of the notion of intersectionality, if only for the idea's popularity on the academic left. But it's a useful way of looking at the ways in which individuality is itself created. Historian Anthony Comegna discusses why people who love liberty should be aware of their own and others' intersections. Divorced from all of the connotations that we modern people would apply to the term intersectionality, and uh, I can hear people cringing at the at the word right now. <laughs> but what does that what does it actually mean, and, and where does it come from? So, from a social science perspective, it comes from an article by Kimberly Crenshaw, a legal scholar back in the early '90s. The title. Uh, off memory here is um, demarginalizing the intersections of race and gender. And it's about the differential way that the legal system treats African-American and white women. And the basic argument is that the different elements of a person's identity or personality, whether chosen by themselves or imposed on them by society, those different elements inter interact and intersect with each other in unique ways that cause differential uh, treatment for different individuals for a wide variety of reasons. And in this article, it was focused on how the, the legal system treats these two categories of women differently. And so her point was that we need to recognize this and engage this fact in our scholarship uh, so that we can produce a more robust uh, feminism that is more... Um, uh, deeply considering women of all different sorts and their advancement as a whole rather than focusing on certain sectors of women. Her argument was that unless we practice feminism and other social science scholarship intersectionally, then everything essentially comes out white or it comes out English speaking or American or straight or whatever the other majority viewpoint is. What's wrong with that? I mean, what, where's the where's the controversy there? Well, as we libertarians or Austrians or whatever you might want to say, as we would immediately pipe up, well, we are all individuals. And I think people sometimes instinctively react against the term intersectionality because to them it just smacks of political leftism. But that, I think that's only because we have ignored it by choice. And there's no good reason to ignore it. In fact, individualism implies intersectionality and vice versa. Intersectionality implies individualism. The, the left is usually wrong in the way that they apply intersectionality because they're not individualists. But we're wrong when we employ individualism without recognizing the intersectionalities involved in creating individuals. So uh, if I'm, let's say, a an apprentice libertarian here, describing uh, or complaining about this notion of intersectionality, it 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 is because it is overwhelmingly dominated by a few intersections. Those would be race, gender, um, status, cultural class, class, uh, wealth, things like that. Um, so, uh, what are some angles, or what are some intersections that are underexplored in your view? Well, um, while I was waiting downstairs to come up to the studio, I decided to just go ahead and list out all the different intersections I thought I have. 
And of course, the first ones were cisgender, straight, white, male. But I'm also a nerd, and I'm a libertarian. I'm in an interracial marriage. I have an adopted son. I was a foster parent. I'm from West Virginia, but I also lived in Pennsylvania and Maryland. I have a beard. And weird as it sounds, people treat you differently. People respond to you differently if you have a beard and if you don't. Some people can't grow them, and it does make some, for some reason, it makes a difference. I'm short. And we know that, you know, some incredibly inordinate number of CEOs are all tall people. All presidents are super tall. You know, Trump says he's had it up to here with Rand Paul and puts his hand at his shoulders or whatever, and he's done, just done as a candidate. Uh, I'm somewhat of a public intellectual, which changes the way that the rest of academia treats me. You're also painfully thin. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm finding that people like these days the combination of a beard, little thin, a uh, little short. I, I don't know, but you know, I'm Way, also wayfish. <laughs> hey, hey, now, wait a second. We could we could go in on you if we want like to. The cover <laughs> like the cover of Gaunt magazine. <laughs> I noticed that you grew a beard after mine, so I'm gonna, I'm going to say that you're <laughs> you're following the trend here, my That's friend. That's fine. I'm an atheist. You know, you're a Quaker. We have very different experiences, and people treat us differently in that regard. People probably assume that that you are a pacifist. And that, you know, they can just push you around or whatever or something like that. Maybe it happens sometimes. People think of me as, you know, some godless, lawless person because I'm an atheist and an anarchist. Um, I'm a skeptic. I'm a critic. I'm a cynic. I'm an optimist, a transhumanist, a smoker, and probably a bunch of other things that I shouldn't be mentioning here. Uh, but it goes on and on and on and on and on. And again, there's no reason that we have to, like, give up individualism to practice intersectionality in our scholarship, they they imply each other. They go hand in hand. So I think the the libertarian dismissal of that notion uh, to the extent that it is uh, widespread, and it, it, it is in a sense just by virtue of the fact that libertarians don't talk about this, right, uh, is that the, the reductio goes to individualism, right? We are this combination of different things and all of these things. Uh, create us as in individuals. These are our interests, our uh, the circumstances in which we exist, the, our bodies. Um, but the the reductio would be, oh well, just we're all individuals, so we don't need any of that other stuff. Yeah, and I, I suppose that there's an element of truth to that as in you know it does reflect what a lot of people would like to do with society they would like for society to exist without so many of these kinds of classifications and divisions and differential treatment for people we would like a more egalitarian society in that regard where these elements of identity don't really mean as much uh, but they do and and truth be told they're meaningful in ways that don't have anything to do with exploitation you know, or problems in our legal system or or people being discriminatory or anything like that. They We like our identities. I mean, there's a reason we choose to be who we are. And some of the things about us we don't choose, but most of the things I think we do. Um, and, you know, I, I, you don't want to, like it's, it's like the people who say, you know, I don't see race or I don't see color. Pro- well, probably because you don't have to. But as a matter of fact, people who, you know, there are lots of people who have plenty of good reasons to care about being black and to find, you know, pride and and uh, uh, enjoyment in that. Um, and 
I don't think that it makes much sense to just go ahead and say none of it matters. It clearly does, even to the person making that argument. I bet, again, if you just talk to them from a broader perspective about intersectionality, they would suddenly find like, oh, well, I don't want to just forget that I'm you know, a Christian or something uh, or that I'm an American, whatever it might be. So uh, for young scholars out there who are listening and you work with a lot of young scholars uh, during your day job, um, what are the benefits of having people who are liberty-minded individualists uh, engage with this notion and make use of the tools that uh, have been provided to study this and to maybe make some interesting contributions on behalf of liberty? Well, I think th probably the most important reason is practical in that this is sort of the paradigm for so much of our uh, professional social sciences now. Since postmodernism in the 60s and 70s, I think this is something that's been added to that paradigm. And if we are sort of running around with our, with our hands over our ears, not, not paying any attention to what 95% of academia has to say, uh, we're not learning nearly as much as we could. And we're certainly not contributing to what the mainstream knows at all because they aren't going to read our work that doesn't engage at all in their paradigm. I think part of the rejection of that uh, notion, uh, to the extent that it's widespread, is that by engaging with it, um, that maybe you are accepting a premise that you haven't really dug into, that, that you're accepting something that actually uh, works against your worldview. Is that part of it? Well, I think people have that sense, but it's mistaken. It's largely political. And maybe the problem is that maybe we haven't been Socratic enough about this and asked the question uh, forcefully enough whether we should be engaging in this stuff or whether we're right to ignore it. I think since that largely goes unasked as a question, for political reasons, people default to ignoring it or demonizing it even. And I think, you know, there there are folks uh, that maybe we don't want to give airtime to who make careers out of, you know, uh, building podcast audiences and stuff that that demonize these left wing ideas in academia, or whatever. Well, but that's that's why they're marginal and they're likely to be irrelevant in academic discussions for a long time. They're not taking the time to engage with ideas in good faith. It's the exact thing that they claim the left is doing. And you know, I, I don't think that you make any headway, certainly not within scholarship in, in that way. You have to assume good faith on the part of your interlocutors and actually make a contribution to the field. And we just aren't doing that enough. So you've assembled a reading list, uh, again, for your day job. And Anthony Kamenga is the host of the Ideas in Progress podcast, which is available wherever better podcasts are sold. <laughs> um, so if, if you were to assign some reading for somebody who listened to this conversation and said, yeah, I'd like to I'd like to dig in here. Is that the first article you mentioned? Is that the starting point or where should somebody start if they want to study this with, you know, without a lot of the baggage that comes along with it typically? Yeah, I think the, the Kimberly Crenshaw article, I mean, that's where intersectionality was coined. She came up with the the concept, uh, at least as applied to social sciences, there were other people before her, like Angela Davis, for example, who who wrote about the need to to uh, be intersectional in your feminism. 
uh, but Crenshaw really introduced the term into social sciences. Um, but I would also say that one wonderful recent book that uh, I recommend all every chance I can get to libertarian audiences is uh, Marcus Redeker's biography of a man named Benjamin Lay. Uh, let me see if I can get the, the title right. Uh, the Fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. Benjamin Lay is just an absolutely astonishing figure. Um, and there are so many different intersections in his life. I, I read this biography and I feel like he is the golden shining example of an undoubtedly libertarian uh, individual where you can just see how all these these aspects of his identity intersected together to produce this incredibly uh, moving figure uh, with these deep, deeply held libertarian sensibilities. And but there are, we have some pieces at libertarianism.org about Benjamin Lay, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I did a, a, a podcast with uh, with Marcus Redeker for Liberty Chronicles on Benjamin Lay, and it's just it's just amazing. He's he, his libertarianism his started as uh, with Quakerism, and his Quakerism pushed him to abolitionism. His abolitionism pushed him to vegetarianism and veganism, and I mean, this is a guy who was so committed to his ideas. That he didn't ride a horse. He lived in a cave in Pennsylvania. He grew his own flax, so he wouldn't have to buy cotton and other, you know, staples for clothing from slave-made uh, plantations or slave-made goods from the plantation. He, uh, the only um, animal-produced food that he ate later in his life was he he kept an apiary, so he ate a little bit of honey, and apparently he drank a bit of milk now and then. Um, he would do all sorts of ama amazing street theater where, where he would go to Quaker meetings and shame the Quakers for participating in the slave trade. And some of them even owned slaves themselves in Pennsylvania on their estates. And he would, he would do things like he filled, he hollowed out this Bible and he filled it with an animal bladder that had this red berry juice in it. And he, so he takes his Bible into the meeting. He's got a sword on his hip, which is unusual for Quakers. First off, and he goes into the meeting and when it's his turn to stand up and, and speak, uh, he gives this railing speech about all the blood on the hands of the Quaker, the, the so-called weighty friends who are the high class, rich Quakers who have slaves and involved in the slave trade. And he says how much blood they have on their hands and he takes his sword out and it stabs it through his hollow Bible and red juice spurts out. People think it's, you know, his Bible is bleeding all over. He runs, he's a dwarf, mind you, he's a little person. And he runs around the crowd sprinkling these weighty friends with uh, the, the blood from the Bible. And uh, he, they kick him out of, the, of every meeting that he was a part of. He got kicked out. Um, he was inspired by Greek philosophy of all sorts, by Hinduism, I mean, by New Age, such as it was, a New, right. a new Age medicine and like wellness uh, uh, thoughts. And I, I mean, he's just the intersectional individual, an undisputable, incredibly important libertarian figure. Okay. So uh, that's a, a case study um for people who have like engaged with this kind of idea though maybe not explicitly uh what are some other readings that people should look at David Beto's recent book David and Linda Beto their recent book on TRM Howard the civil rights leader is fantastic it's a great example of writing intersectional history this guy TRM Howard 
Uh, he's sort of like the Forrest Gump of the civil rights movement, except that he was he was everywhere and tremendously important in moving events. He wasn't just an observer. He was moving, driving events forward. He he was uh, in in the Mississippi Delta. So he was there at the Emmett Till case. He was like one of the first people on the scene making a big deal about this case. Um, and through that, he helped inspire Rosa Parks's bus boycott. He helped inspire a lot of what Martin Luther King was doing. He was very wealthy and flashy, and he was a Second Amendment supporter to empower black people to resist the, the Jim Crow South and protect themselves against violence. Uh, so he would drive around the, the Mississippi Delta, an area of the country that had zero black voters registered, but a majority of black people, right? very hostile to civil rights. And he'd drive around in a flashy car. He'd change his suit several times a day. Uh, he would say whatever he wanted to whoever he wanted because he always had a gun in his glove compartment. You know, He even had a secret compartment built into his car so that the police couldn't find his gun when he got pulled over. And then later in life, he ends up um, practicing illegal abortions at a clinic in Chicago, helping to drive that civil rights movement forward for access to abortion. And uh, he did it because he knew, <laughs> he knew firsthand how hard it was for black single mothers. And if they had the option to have an abortion, they could delay their, their first child further in life and be much better off financially and put less of a strain on the welfare system and be more independent and build a better black community. And for him, it was, a, it was, again, a civil rights issue. It was about making the black community stronger and better uh, by respecting people's autonomy. And um, he would know how hard it was because he also was, was a serial philanderer. And he, he had separate secret families all over the country, essentially. Another aspect of his An identity. Another aspect that you know might go forgotten and unexplored unless you're willing to dig up all the different intersections in somebody's life and present them as a complicated figure. Historian Anthony Kamegna hosts the Ideas in Progress podcast. And now a shout out to a supporter of the Cato Daily podcast, Gisela and Edward Lloyd. Thank you for your support of Cato and this podcast. Without supporters like you, we couldn't do the work we do advancing individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and peace. Again, thank you. And you can subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.